Mark chapter 9, verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on him, on us, and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's say a quick word of prayer and then we'll get started. Gracious Father, we are so grateful for the privilege of coming together today to worship your holy name. Lord, I pray that this time would be edifying for all of us, that we'd sharpen one another, that we'd grow in love and good deeds to the glory of your name, for the good of your church, and for the good of our neighbor alongside of us. Alongside of that, I pray that in this time you would also prepare our hearts for worship, uh, that we would not come before the preaching of your word with uh, minds tangled by worries and anxieties and sin struggles and sufferings, but rather that our hearts would remain steadfast because they find their rest in you. Give us that peace, Lord, as we approach your word in just a little while. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, let's go ahead and jump into an announcement or two, and then we'll unpack uh, an, an implication or two from that passage we just read. Uh, for those of you who did not already see this on Facebook, lower this just a little, there we go. Uh, I just got orders for my next assignment, or rather, request for orders, an RFO. Uh, in July, uh, the Roberts family will be following the Carbo family, and Tabby will be following Bristol uh, down to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Uh, and I'll be working on the same side of the post as Chris uh, in the Special Operations Command uh, with psychological operations down there. So we're excited for this. I think more than ever we feel like a missionary family. And we're excited for the next missionary journey for our family where we get to serve Christ in a new place. Uh, but it certainly is bittersweet. Uh, we're leaving behind a dear church family here. Uh, this is in a sense, I, the past three years I've been able to both be a missionary and be on furlough every Sunday. And that's been a delight. Uh, but we'll have more time for talking about that in the future. Uh, but I want you to know how great it has been to be here. And we really enjoy the opportunity not only to be here, but we still have a good six months uh, to enjoy our time here with you all. And we're going to take advantage of it. Uh, one more quick note. Uh, I often don't bring resources with me, but I realize I should probably do that more. You guys would probably like to have a few more things that you can that you can look to, that you can use as reference points. So a couple of things that I've been going through recently that have been helpful for me. Well, first of all, one thing I wrote. I, I think I mentioned to you, I wrote an article for Modern Reformation. So this month's issue, Modern Reformation, uh, I have an article on Christianity in a New Age. Uh, going over a lot of what we talked about last year in Sunday School. How to approach the modern culture with the gospel. Uh, other resources that have been helpful for me. Uh, Journal of Biblical Counseling from Westminster, Philly is filled with all sorts of wonderful and godly wisdom. And I've got a couple of their 
must-read little booklets of like top articles. One's on redeeming psychology and how really psychology, real psychology can only be done if you go down to basic beliefs, uh, which is very much the type of the school of thought I'm working in. Another one here on suffering, which I've uh, found very helpful and I'm going through right now. I also love biographies. Less and less do people learn by abstractions. I remember hearing this on a podcast about a year ago. Oftentimes, even in our preaching and teaching, uh, we start with abstractions, with general truths, and then try to illustrate it. And most minds, uh, including in the West, don't think from abstraction to particular. They think from particular to abstraction. They learn a principle by seeing it, like embedded in a storyline, and then they're able to draw together that general principle. I love biographies because you see so much of what we're talking about, uh, how broken backgrounds shape broken beliefs, or backgrounds in general shape beliefs, uh, stretched out in narrative form in people's lives. And from that, you see these same principles, but typically we get it better uh, through these uh, mediums. So one I just read to Great Prophet is The Creaking on the Stairs, Finding Faith in God Through Childhood Abuse. This is by a pastor over in, I believe, Ireland. Now, this isn't actually the biography. He has another book that I haven't read that's the biography. But you still get a lot of his memories and like stories uh, throughout in this book. And it's just so interesting to see how all this intermeshes. So I love stories like that. Uh, there's another one by a former Dallas uh, Theological Seminary professor, Jack Deere, uh, that I read last year. Same deal, describing, even despite the fact that he was a pastor and professor, incredible trauma in the, in the past that actually came back and really haunted his life in later years while he was this successful minister and professor. Uh, showing the need to really wrestle with these things. And finally, as a practical devotional note, when I read God's Word to you today, I did so from the ESV Scripture Journal for the Gospel of Mark. And one of my presents I got for Christmas this year is the New Testament set of Scripture Journals. I love these things. Uh, one page is, this is Scripture text, and then you have a full page that take notes. Uh, and it forces you to slow down when you're going through God's Word which is in itself a sort of therapy. We're called to meditate upon God's word, not simply read it. And whether you're a secular psychologist or a Christian uh, counselor, uh, there's always this emphasis on the importance of journaling, and in particular, doing so alongside scripture, because it helps, in a sense, kind of spoon-feed it into your heart. So those are just a couple of resources I'm currently working with. I believe, help my unbelief. For every single person, every single one of us, there's a disjunction, and we mentioned this last year, between what we believe to be true and what we truly believe. All of us have false identities, false idols, false ideals. Now, I'm a pastor. I love alliteration. False identities, false idols, false ideals that we abide by in our practical everyday life, some more than others. That doesn't mean that Christ is not working in us to will and work according to his good pleasure. And that, that does not mean that we don't worship the true and living God and believe the things we profess. But much of our life and our sanctification is about wedding our practice to those truths. Uh, a lot of times, 
this all occurs in, a, in the unseen terrain. We don't even realize this is happening. But that's where a lot of the sanctification occurs. Uh, so there's that disjunction. I believe, help my unbelief. It's one of my favorite prayers. And this applies to people we're trying to counsel both inside and outside the church. So last time we talked, we talked about the importance of delving into people's backgrounds. It is so very, very important to get to hear their story of unbelief. Their testimony, in a sense, is just as important as ours. Because once we get their testimony of unbelief, we can give them our testimony of belief. But we need them to unpack that story. And we kind of left off last time talking about how and dealing with our backgrounds, especially broken backgrounds, very visibly broken ones, we develop coping mechanisms. These often then become the basis of what becomes our practical religions, uh, the actual contours of our unbelief. Uh, but I want to make a quick note here. It's not just broken backgrounds. I so love having my wife in the pews here because she's always critiquing me after I teach or preach, uh, helping me to improve my thinking on a lot of these matters. Uh, a lot of you didn't grow up in broken homes, especially those of you who are older, visibly broken. And we live in a broken world. We live, uh, we live under the fall. Uh, a lot of you had relatively stable homes. Maybe you grew up with two Christian parents uh, who are generally pretty loving. Or maybe it's stable in other ways. Maybe it was not necessarily a Christian household, but a relatively moral household. Do these things still shape false beliefs? Uh, if your parents, let's say, were not believers, even if they were believers, but their primary value in life uh, is to be a professional success. It's all about your education. Uh, it's all about you working as hard as you possibly can, no matter what, to succeed in life. Uh, can that shape false beliefs regarding who you are, what you're living for, uh, what is it you eventually want? identity, idols, ideals. Again, a relatively stable household. But let's say, again, Christ isn't in the picture here. Even if it's a Christian household, he's not actively presented. Instead, it's about being a good person. Son, one day I want you to be a good husband and father. Forget about everything else. You've just got to be a good husband and father. A good thing to be, right? But not the great thing. Ultimately, that's not where we find our identity but if you're raised in that sort of household, then you might have a false identity. Of what, a false, you might have false idols, false ideals. Uh, again, who am I? Uh, what am I living for? What is it I really want? So even in a stable household, even in a Christian household, those weeds grow up uh, within our hearts. Uh, practically speaking, we're so often uh, living in the wake of our homes. Uh, what I appreciate about broken backgrounds, I know this sounds weird, why I love being a part of this generation, I think this is the best time in American history to be in our country and to be a Christian. And the reason why I think so is because it's more on the surface. With, with broken households, uh, you don't have to do much digging. It's like uh, Charlie Monty's. I know I use Charlie a lot, but that's because he doesn't care. Uh, Charlie, like, gee, I wonder what his issues are. Right, they're all up here, and I love that, because uh, you can just plow right in and engage them right there where he's at. When everything is stable and uh, more solid, 
all that's still there. There's still sin in your household. We admire so many of you for the way in which you've raised your families. Uh, but there's still sin struggles there. There's still false identities, false idols, false ideals. And with you guys, it's way harder to figure out what those are. It's so much more subtle uh, to see those things. It's so much more difficult. Uh, so the broken part is easy. That's why it's, I use it much more in, ex- in terms of examples. Uh, those are the easy marks. But we all struggle with these things. So backgrounds lead to beliefs. That doesn't mean the things we believe out of our backgrounds are necessarily true. Uh, that's not, some, make sure you don't hear me this way. I'm not saying that our beliefs are all relative. You know, there's that school of thought out there that says we only believe what we do because of the way we were raised. And I'm sorry, but that's stupid. Uh, a million people have come to Christ in Iran in the last 20 years. Uh, I think before that point, maybe around the time of the fall of Shah, there's like several hundred people total in Iran who are Christians. Now we have about a million. Uh, they, did, they weren't raised with that. Uh, in our country, a lot of us were raised with Christian morals, and, well, that's all gone, gone out the window. Uh, just because we're raised a certain way doesn't mean that that is what we're ultimately going to believe. But what I'm saying is it does shape those things. Uh, for better or for worse. And so those beliefs. This week we're going to talk for just a little bit about examining broken beliefs. We've already got the story of the background. We've already got a picture of what people were raised with. But now you're looking for certain things. So they're telling you, let's say, uh, my parents divorced when I was three. Uh, I grew really depressed uh, thought about suicide when I was in high school. Uh, now I'm married, and I'm constantly scared that my wife's going to leave me. Uh, you know, you look at that sort of storyline. Now you've got you've got that picture fleshed out for you, and now you're looking for what their basic beliefs are. And again, I'm going to keep coming back to this today: identities, idols, ideals. Who am I? What am I living for? What is it I really want? And instead of just giving you principles, because again, principles aren't necessarily the most helpful without them being fleshed out, I'm going to put somebody on the operating table for a few minutes. And you've heard a couple of my stories, but, I'm stu- but I'm st- you can hear them again. Uh, I'm going to put myself on the operating table uh, because I give myself full, full permission to talk about my story, and I haven't necessarily gotten that from other people. Uh, so you guys know a little bit about my past. Grew up in a very violently abusive household. Uh, I wasn't the primary recipient of it, but I really I watched everything for years. So in 2009, newly married to Lindsay, we're in this apartment, hardly have any furniture. We have a little box TV on the floor that we watch on occasion. Uh, we, we don't have chairs, so we sit on the floor to watch TV. We eat, eat Fig Newtons from Costco. Uh, we have a card table we borrowed from somebody to service our dinner table. You know, that beautiful early married life that I wish on everybody. Uh, I don't regret for a second that that was our early married life. That's exactly how it should be. And hopefully no one just, like, jumps into married life with all of everything handed to them. And at one point, Lindsay sp- accidentally spilled crystal light all over my laptop. We hardly have any money. Half of like living in this world nowadays is through your laptop. 
Like, that's like my most important item. And spilled crystallite all over it. And like, like, stopped working. I didn't get incredibly angry or incredibly sad. I went and lied down on the floor and stared up at the ceiling for a long time, just totally numb and blank, emotionally disconnected. And Lindsay's like, uh, that's not normal. What's wrong with this guy? And we've always had a rule in our marriage. If one of us says the other needs to go see a counselor or that we need to go see a counselor, we'll do it. Because we grew up in this generation. We're not taking chances. We know what's out there. And so we always want to be ready to fight. Plus, in my experience, if someone says, no, I will not see a counselor, they're saying, no, I am giving up. I will not work for the, on the marriage. I'm giving up. That's usually the greatest litmus test about whether someone's willing to fight for their marriage. And so she's like, Stephen, time to put this principle into good use. We're going to go see a counselor. And so we went and saw this wonderful counselor at our church in Fourth, Fourth Presbyterian Church in the D.C. suburbs. And look at me through his eyes. So he hears what happened, like the trigger event. And he says, okay, he emotionally disconnected. So let's kind of follow this, this rabbit trail. Let's figure out where this came from. So he asked me to start talking about my past, uh, just like we were talking about uh, last time I was here. And I started unpacking my past and all the traumas, which I can still remember, freeze frame by freeze frame by freeze frame. Lindsay hears a new story uh, every time I get together with my family. My brother was out here this past week because one of his best friends from this area uh, died about a week and a half ago. And so he was out here. We were caring for him and his tears. And we were sharing stories back and forth about our past. And there was another, it happens every time. And he's like, I didn't hear that one before. There's so many. But I was walking through all these stories. And I was talking just like I am right now. Virtually monotone. And no emotion whatsoever. And again, look at me through his eyes. All right. He emotionally disconnected in that moment of stress with his wife. And he is speaking about all these experiences with no emotion whatsoever. He's emotionally disconnected. And then we dig a little bit more into my past. Uh, Stephen, uh, when these things happen in your household, what did you do? You know, as kids, we have so few tools in our toolkit for dealing with these things. You can run away. You can fight back, except I wasn't the main participant in these things, so I couldn't fight back. I grow incredibly angry, which I did at times. I, I turn it out on kids at school. Uh, get incredibly depressed. I, I did at times. I would cut at my wrist when I was in elementary school, but didn't have the courage to go through with it. Or you can emotionally run away, emotionally disconnect. And that is what I most often did. As things started to fly and swirl around me, uh, the sounds, uh, the crashes, everything, it's like I had, I'd be like an out-of-body experience uh, watching all these things. as almost as if I was hovering above them. Uh, I, didn't even, I didn't teach myself to do that. I didn't know to do that. Uh, and looking back, I thank God that I did that because that's one of the ways in which the Lord kept me safe. It was a survival mechanism. But it enabled me uh, to not totally get crushed by those experiences. God used it to protect me. But what did I do? I emotionally disconnected. The emotions die as soon as hard things happen. It, it, it's helpful, really helpful when I go to Afghanistan because it's just like I'm a rock. Uh, I don't feel anything. Uh, but it's incredibly unhealthy. And so now you have this fully ordered picture and the counselor said, Stephen, 
I think I told you guys before, what, kept, what the Lord used to keep you alive as a kid is going to kill you and your marriage as an adult. <laughs> Apparently, wives don't like husbands who are emotionally inaccessible. I don't know why. <laughs> but it crushes us and it crushes our marriages. And so by delving into my background, he was able to see this pattern, this thread, this coping mechanism that was incredibly unhealthy. But then he could start tying into that. The more he fleshed it out, false identities, false idols, false ideals. Again, every single one of us can do that. You want a great spiritual exercise, you write these things out to yourself. Go through your own background and try to unpack these things. Do it alongside scripture to get you know, God's, God's take on these things as well. Do it in prayer. Uh, again, journaling is so wonderful in this regard. Talk to your spouse. Talk to other people you love. Uh, but in my house, I was the fourth of five kids. Uh, so already, that's, I consider that like the most disadvantaged spot. You're not the first board. Uh, you're not the first of any particular gender. Usually you're not uh, the middle kid who everybody's got an eye on because the middle kids are always screwed up. Like, you're not the last kid who gets spoiled. Uh, so the fourth of five. And I was also always, compared to my brothers, relatively tame. Uh, I'm the quiet one in my family, ironically. Uh, good luck if you ever meet my entire family. You'll want to curl up in the fetal position. Uh, we, let's say used to take breaks at family holidays in the East Coast. Uh, every hour or so, she would take 15 minutes and lock herself in the car. And I, I think every in-law in our family has shared that experience. Uh, so I was the quiet one. I was the bookworm, the reader, the intellectual. Very, very sensitive. Really, all the men in my family are. We're all very sensitive. Uh, part of what made all those years probably so painful. And uh, when things started to get really bad, I was not the worst kid. I, in fact, I was probably the more morally self-righteous one. I got suspended several times, sure, but the brothers on either side of me who were more obviously ADHD uh, had more serious needs in that regard. Both got kicked out of the public school system. And they were also the primary recipients of the abuse. And so that's where all the attention was going. My older siblings were largely independent enough to not be as affected by this. Uh, for me, uh, I wasn't the primary recipient, and I was generally the morally responsible one. And so I would just watch it all unfold around me, and I would constantly slip through the cracks because I was not the crisis case. Uh, and I'd see that over and over again. And when things did go bad in our, in our household, Stephen, you know the right thing to do. Uh, you, know, you go lock yourself in a room. You get out of there. You get away from whatever bad is going on. You get away from that. Constant avoidance is what I was encouraged to do because I was the relatively uh, safe kid in the family, the relatively normal one. But largely unnoticed. But what I did have is, well... I was always regarded as being more morally responsible. A great recipe for self-righteousness. And after my sister really came back to the Lord while she was at Wheaton College, she'd come home, and I'd tell her, well, I'm the most Christian of my brothers. She'd be like, what? Most Christian? What does that even mean? Uh, by the way, we're also all incredibly blunt. Uh, she's like, there's, that, there, that's, a, that's a nothing phrase. That, that means nothing. Uh, there's no being most Christian or more Christian other people. Uh, Christianity is an identity. In essence, this is what she was saying. It's not like just an adjective that you attach to things like more or less. 
But I, I thought, thought of myself that way. Like, yeah, at least I'm not getting, getting kicked out of the public school system. At least my life isn't co- totally going off the rails like some of these others. And so I was kind of the older prodigal brother growing up through that. But more and more, I identified myself with my character traits. And this is what people do, all of us. We constantly slip into these false identities of accomplishments, uh, relationships, character traits. This is really the big three. Nowadays, more and more, gender and sexuality. Uh, people find their identity, their inherent identity in those things, which is incredibly ironic because we're told it's all fluid. So it seems like we're setting people up for disaster from the, from the outset. Uh, but accomplishments, relationships, character traits, or you want an acronym because an army always have acronyms, ARC, accomplishments, relationships, character traits, and then gender and sexuality nowadays. So character traits. I am the good kid. And then even when I became a Christian, that began to get fleshed out. Uh, I wanted to be known as the good kid. So not only am I my, finding my identity as being a good person. This, by the way, one of my biggest struggles nowadays, too. Sometimes I'd rather be considered a good chaplain than have a great savior. And so this false identity crafted in my background starts to bloom really alongside me becoming a Christian. So it tied into that. There was a false idol. I wanted appreciation and applause, but I never got growing up because I was never the crisis case. I was always left there in the shadows. Not my parents' intention. I love my parents. But inevitably, that's what's going to happen. I would probably do the same thing as a parent. It's the idol of appreciation and applause. I want especially older men. Oh, man, if I could just drink that in, that approval from older men, I'm like, Daddy. Uh, and if I don't, if some older man just comes and crushes me, just lays my sin out before me, uh, well, to be blunt, kind of like what happened in Wisconsin to me uh, when I was in the ministry there, it's absolutely crushing and devastating. Uh, I have virtually no defense for it. Thankfully, I have Jesus, and that was my refuge there. Uh, it's so false identity. It was character. It was being a good person. I Idolatry appreciation and applause. So I became a Christian, and I might not be the smartest person. Uh, I might not be the most ambitious, the most successful, uh, but I have my tongue. I have my, um, I can be articulate. Uh, I have that, I know my personality, there's some charisma there, and I can use all that to garner appreciation and applause. And so, I became a Christian, and by sophomore year, I'm leading this Bible study of my fellow 10th graders in my youth group. We had a really large youth group. It was about 100 high schoolers. So I probably had about 10 or 15 guys I could lead a Bible study with in just really my second year of walking with the Lord. And then it was the president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes, uh, the president of Character Counts, peer mediator, president of, uh, my se- or vice president of my senior class. And during those years, I was inviting hundreds of my fellow classmates, virtually all the non-believers, to this Thursday morning church outreach event before school. And it's divided. I don't want to say this was all idolatry. A lot of it was a genuine love for their souls. I've always been an evangelist. But there was also a false identity and idolatry tied into that. One of the reasons why people would go to all these events, one of the reasons why I got voted senior class vice president was because I love people. They saw me coming along and like, this 
this guy really cares about me. What a good guy. And even my testimony that time, guys, God changed my life, and he can change yours too, with me really getting a part of the glory. And I get their appreciation, their applause. And so constantly, there's that wrestling between my identity in Christ and this false identity and idolatry crafted by my childhood. I've given you kind of a big five for identity. If you want a great book on idolatry, false idols, uh, Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods, I use as a wonderful tool with both believers and unbelievers. It's a great diagnostic. It helps show you, it takes a scalpel to your heart, what are your idols? Love, money, power, influence. Uh, it helps you sort through those in really helpful ways so that you can figure out how to look for that in your life. And so those were all at work in my Christian life. Now, false ideals. So with identity, it's that who am I question. If I ask you guys who, who you are, a lot of you probably wouldn't know what to say right away, but it ultimately come back to something along the lines of, well, I'm a child of the living God. I'm one who's bought with the love of, with, by the blood of Christ. I am loved by God. You know, that, that's like the essential Christian identity there. I am in Christ. Uh, but practically speaking, you can know that at times it's not true for you in terms of what you're actually practicing. Uh, so identity, idols. The idol, idolatry question, what is it you're actually living for? Uh, I like to say I'm always living for Christ, but a lot of times I'm uh, living for a comfortable family. Like, I love the army. I put up with a lot of nonsense. Remember, this is the DMV with guns. Uh, it is incredibly uh, idiotic in terms of its, its, how it works in practice. Most soldiers don't leave because of deployments. Most soldiers get out of the army because they're tired of dealing with the army BS, the bureaucracy, the pay issues, uh, losing paperwork, uh, all those things. I don't mind any of that. I don't like when they mess with my family. I don't like leaving home when I don't have to leave home. I don't like, like it when they're calling me to work a long weekend. I don't like it when I'm work, if I'm working like 15-hour days. Uh, don't mess with my family. But there's an idolatry there, too. I... Uh, Sometimes I'm not, I, one, my family is my, my first ministry. That is most important, and i got to recognize that. But at other points, I, I have a stranglehold with my family. I, I want nothing more than to be with my family and have a beautiful, happy family. Let's go do the next experience. Let's go over to Pacific Beach, uh, Ocean Shores. Let's go down to Portland. Let's have time as a family. I'm desperately probably trying to get what I didn't get growing up. Uh, you love things so much, and you squeeze so hard, and there you found an idol. Uh, at one point, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was at home with Lindsay enjoying another night of quality time with my wife, and all she really wanted to do was watch The Crown on Netflix. And Was it Netflix or PBS? I don't know. Ah, whatever, one for BBC shows. And she's like, you know, I love you too. I don't need you at home every night when you're not out in the field. Like, you know, go make friends. Uh, it actually is. I think it was a night or two later that I went and hung out with uh, Will and Charlie. I, I was an idol. Beautiful thing to spend time with family. But uh, it's like if you've read of Mice and Men, uh, Lenny really loved mice. <laughs> he, lo he loved them t until he crushed them. Uh, that's, usually, that's one way in which you find an idol. 
false ideals. So first of all, who am I? I uh, identity. Uh, what am I living for? Idols. What is it I really want? False ideals. You could also you could say it's like a false dream, a false salvation. And this really got unearthed for me. By the way, I learned a lot of these things receiving counseling myself. Uh, when I was doing counseling with both uh, Tim Fari and with Brett uh, last year, I think it was Tim who really let me on to this. Uh, it's when he decided that I should meet with him once a week rather than once every two weeks. I had just been crushed. I had just done 30 counselings in a week. You talk to any psychologist, they should be doing 12 is probably about the max for a healthy load. Uh, each hour of counseling is really worth three uh, in terms of actual weight on your life. Uh, and plus, you need that. usually need an hour of prep time, maybe an hour of like, notes, wind-down time. But every hour is worth three in terms of weight. I did 30 uh, that week. And I was losing so many of these people. I wasn't solving their problems. I wasn't saving their marriages. It was breaking me. There was a young believer who, who uh, had like a, a small fight with his wife. He's like, oh, I didn't realize that things were at this point. Maybe we should get counseling. And so he called me up, and I was counseling him. I called his wife. I was counseling her. And she said, they had that fight only two years in their marriage, and she said, um, I'm out. And I think after that first time, I called her up and said, hey, I'm ready to work with you guys. Let's get this marriage back on the right track. Uh, I'll, I'll hold your husband's feet to the fire, uh, help get him, get him in order. Uh, right after that, she cut contact with me. She cut contact with him. She moved halfway across the country and filed the papers. He didn't think anything was wrong with their marriage. He loved her to death. She was his best friend. And it, it, it cases like that were just crushing me. I couldn't be Jesus. Uh, to these people, and I so often want to be Jesus and need Jesus. Uh, I so often have that messianic complex. And I went to Chaplain Fari's office. Uh, he was our family life counselor, Jay Bielman. and he's, he was wonderful at it. And I said, Tim, I'm just, I'm tired of this. Like, it's, it's so difficult seeing this happen to all these people. It is so much and at first, he was just talking to me about boundaries. I can't be Jesus. I need a lesson of caseload. I should never do them back to back, all that sort of stuff. But then it got to the point where at one point, I was like, you know what? I had to grow up with this. Uh, I had to grow up with that. And I hated that. I hated that, that that's my background. That's miserable. And I grew up in a culture in which everybody was growing up with that in the D.C. area. We all grew up in broken homes. I watched other parents abuse their kids. I... I would hold my friends even in high school as their parents were going through a divorce. And that was the margins then. Mainstream society still seemed relatively intact. And now here I am, and it's not the margins. It's everybody. Everybody grew up in broken homes. Everybody has broken homes. It's just fraying more and more. I'm tired of this. My life is now everybody else's life. Why can't I just live in a neighborhood in which most marriages and most families and the community as a whole are intact? Is a backyard ba- barbecue too much to ask? And that's when he was like, well, maybe we should meet once a week. <laughs> he said, uh, that picture you're painting, uh, that doesn't look like heaven, nor is your background really hell. Uh, that picture you're painting looks like 1950s suburbia. And by the way, they didn't have it too great either. Just ask minorities. Uh, there were a lot of issues back in that time as well. 
we often see the deficiencies in our past and say, in essence, that is the fall, or even that is hell. And usually the things that we are truly uh, living for, the things we truly want in life, that, that beautiful horizon, that point of arrival, uh, is the opposite of that. Uh, wherever those valleys were, you create those mountains. These are the mountain peaks. And so for me, it was attack communities, families, a place where, places where people could be safe, to be loved, where there was grace. Uh, you, know, and we, they, you know, that's one of the reasons we have the church, too. This is a place where we work toward that. Uh, false ideals, false, uh, false view of salvation. Again, we all have them. Ask yourself, what does arrival look like? I promise you, each of you have a view for what arrival looks like, and it's not heaven. It's not, uh, I'm living in tents and tab- tabernacles looking forward to a city whose builder maker is God. You've got your own city already in mind. For a lot of people, it's retirement. That's why retirement is usually one of the most depressing points of people's lives. Uh, people retire, and they're like, oh, wait a second. This is not what I thought it would be. I think they were picturing just like, I don't know, ocean fronts, uh, sunbathing. Uh, and that's often not what it looks like. Uh, I have a dear young Christian couple who have been coming to me for counseling recently. Uh, they're 27. They have a four-year-old girl. Uh, she has st- stage three cancer. Just had a full hysterectomy plus. Uh, and the prognosis is actually very, very poor. And they've been wrestling a lot with that this, these past couple weeks. Uh, but even in miniature, she went through 25 straight days of radiation. And it's brutal. Brutal. But like, hey, then we're going to, you know, they're counting on the days. This, the radiation's going to stop. And things are going to be so much better. And then radiation stopped. And the next day, they're like, this is it? Now they're waiting for a prognosis. It's going to take at least two weeks. She's like, do I need to do more radiation? Like, all of a sudden, there's nothing more to do. Like, they didn't arrive. Uh, they're supposed to get a, the prognosis on Thursday, but it's the Army, so there's a clerical error, so they forgot to be ready with the prognosis. And so they were all geared up for that day, and then the prognosis never came. They have to wait another week. Uh, that was the day they were supposed to arrive. This is one of the things we've been wrestling with. Thankfully, they're clinging to Jesus. And it's been amazing to see how they're turning their faces like flint to the throne of grace uh, to fight for each day they have as a family. Uh, false ideals. False salvations. So my challenge to you all, first of all, you know, what time am I supposed to end again? 1040, 1045? Okay. My challenge to you all, you know, once this isn't just for other people. For each of you, as you survey your own lives, take the scalpel. Where are my false idols? You have them. My false identity, you have it. Where are, what are my false ideals? Who am I? False identity. Uh, what am I uh, living for? Your false idols? What is it that I really want? Your false ideals? And it's, you get that. You, you wrestle with that before the Lord. You journal about it. You wrestle with God and his word. You pray about it. You talk about it with fellow believers. And then you overlay the gospel on top of that. With the identity that Christ gives you. 
uh, what it means to really live for Christ, to live as Christ dies gain. Uh, the city you're really looking forward to. And all of a sudden, all those things are not just good orthodoxy. Uh, those things are beautiful uh, treasures of hope. Uh, beautiful comforts. Now all of a sudden, these things are hitting you on the ground level. But as you're engaging your fellow believer, an unbeliever, these are the things you want to learn as well. Where are those false identities, those false idols, uh, those false ideals? You unpack those, you expose their religious system, and we are all religious, right? In Romans 1. Philosophically, it's impossible not to be religious. We all have views about why this world is the way it is, how we live in response. Just some people are more conscious of what their religion is. Others are not. And so you're exposing that, which is a gift to whoever you're talking to. Uh, and it's also a gift to you because now you have this data point. Now it's on the surface. Now we can engage. So next week we're going to be talking uh, a little bit more about how to engage those false idols, those false identities, those false ideals. How to start critiquing them. Show why they're not working. Uh, show why they can't support life as a whole, let alone suffering. All these things work for people when everything is going well. But for everybody at some point, that wrecking ball of life hits and it shatters this whole scheme. And you get into that and then you can start talking about what can withstand the blow? Who can calm the storm? So next week, we'll deal more with how do you critique and pick apart this false belief system. Uh, the following week, we'll talk more about how to engage it with the gospel and show that only the gospel suffices in this world. Only the gospel. Uh, and you've done it all these psychological, not philosophical terms. Uh, so we're going to pray in just a moment. Before we do, uh, uh, if you, again, if you have questions, please talk to me offline. I can always uh, bring them before the whole group next week as well. This is pretty free-flowing. I have all my content in mind. I've done my outline in the background. Uh, but there's plenty of flexibility here to add pieces of that in. Uh, but before I pray, uh, I have two friends who are going to be here today, one of whom is already here. Uh, his name is Stephen. You'll love to meet him. Hey, Stephen, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Yes, you do. For how long? Um, about three months. About two months, about two months now. Uh, Stephen is a, for lack of a better term, this isn't a pejorative term, brother. Uh, he's a baby Christian. Uh, I've told him now I not only get to call you brother, as in somebody who's created an image of God that I love dearly, but he's now my eternal brother. Uh, but he came to know Jesus about two months ago. Uh, we've spent a lot of time together. He probably knows a lot of what I've been talking about with you guys about as well as I do. Uh, but he's a delight to talk to. Please encourage him in the Lord. Uh, it's a raw and messy time in your life when you're a new Christian. I remember that time in my life, too. Uh, He's got a beautiful wife and a beautiful baby boy, too, that he's trying to care for. So just please encourage him in the Lord. Also, during the service, uh, my good friend Drew, who many of you met last year, will be coming here as well. I tell him, if you come to one or the other, come to the service. Uh, that's where you get to encounter Jesus more directly, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, through the preaching of his word. Uh, but please en encourage him. Uh, love on him as well. Uh, he's struggling. He could, just, he could use uh, a warm hug, love. Uh, grace. Uh, that's what the church is, right? A hospital for souls. 
with a divine physician attending to us uh, through his broken messenger and through the love of the people of God who he uses to hold you up with a hundred hands. So I'll go ahead and say a word of prayer uh, and then we'll break before the service. Lord God, I'm so thankful for who you are. Uh, you are a loving heavenly father. Uh, as far as the east is from the west, so you have set our sin from us. Uh, as far as, a, as high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is your love for us. As a father has compassion upon his children, so the Lord has compassion upon those who fear him. I love all these beautiful analogies and pictures of your love and grace. I confess with my brothers and sisters that I continue to struggle with that false idol of just trying to be a good person, be known as a good person, a good chaplain. Uh, that false identity, I mean, the false idols, I wanted people's praise and applause and approval, how I love flattery and how it sickens my soul, even as I love it. Uh, that false ideal of just wanting to live a comfortable life with my family with intact relationships and an intact community, uh, continue to take the scalpel to my own heart, convict in my sin, and drive me to the gospel of grace, which is what I truly need. Please do that for my brothers and sisters as well. And help us, even as you take the scalpel to our own hearts, to do the same with, with others, those we love within the household of God and those we love outside of it, that we can effectively love these people, that we will correctly engage them with the gospel where they are at rather than when, where we think or presume them to be or where we wish them to be. Again, we're so grateful for your love. Please prepare our hearts for the preaching of your word. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.